You're listening to the Mind Your Autistic Brain podcast, the show for late identified autistics. Each week, you will hear the autism journey of another late identified person, including their hardest part, their best part, and insights they share just for you. So you know you are not alone on this journey, my friend. Find your person and community here each week. And don't miss the special editions of Creator Spotlight and Hot Topic with your hostess with the mostest, Social Audie. That's me, Carol Jean. Let's get started. Welcome to the show. Well, so glad to be here. I've been really looking forward to this and uh, like always looking forward to having a chat with you. Oh, I have too. And one of the things that I really love, if you have been a subscriber to the newsletter, and we had our very first newsletter, The Brain Dump, that came out last month in February, Tim Goldstein was the featured podcast episode. The Brain Dump is just an accumulation of all the things that I found that I really love, that I just want to share with you and I don't want you to miss. And Tim is one of those people, and his podcast is one of those shows. Tim, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Well, my podcast, I um, I refer to it as a life in the neurotypical universe, um, because as uh, you know, autistic neurodistinct individuals, we have to live in a world that is not quite the world the way we would build it. Uh, so it, it really is trying to express uh, looking at life and the things that you deal with in adult life from the perspective of autistic individuals. And a lot of my guests are autistic, and a lot of them are people who work in the field of autism, but may not be autistic themselves, uh, but definitely very conversant on, you know, what is going on in the modern world of autism, not in the, uh, you know, 1990s world. Well, Tim, one of the things that I truly love about your website, and one of the things that, like, we had a friend introduce us, which I love, our friend Jesse, and... I went to your website just like before we met and I thought, okay, let me just go see who Tim Goldstein is. Let me check this guy out and just kind of get the feels for him. Right. So I go to your website, I go to timgoldstein.com and there is this phenomenal introductory video of you talking about this hike that you went on and sort of sharing how you got lost and just the whole experience of it. And then I found the neuro cloud. And I went, oh, my God, I love this man. I haven't even met him yet. And I love him. <laughs> His, you're, you're just, you're, your brain is a beautiful thing. And I love the way you think. I love the way you approach things. I would really love for you to share your concept of the neuro cloud. Just sort of the brief, this is what it is. Sure. But, but first, I have to correct one thing. I yeah. was not lost. I knew exactly where I was on the mountain <laughs> at about three and a half thousand meters. It was my car that didn't know where it was. There so you go. My car was lost. I, I personally knew exactly where I was. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you knew where you were in the moment. It's kind of like when somebody says, well, where are you? And I'm like, well, I'm right here. And they're talking, you know, some kind of existential question. And I'm like, dude, I'm right here. <laughs> but I, I, it's actually an important point, I think, um, you know, diverting from the neurocloud. We'll get back to that. But I think it's an important point that people understand um, about autistic individuals was I was in the moment and I was perfectly fine. The fact that I didn't know how to get to my car and to the rest of civilization was not a problem because I had everything I needed for at least two days worth in my back. So again, to me, it was my car loss, not me being lost. 
Um, See, I love that. Because that is exactly it, what I would have said. I was yeah, like, but, look, I got everything. I'm good. I know where I am. We'll just keep moving. And that's exactly what I did, which, uh, you know, when I talked to a lot of neurotypicals, instead, they have this panic hit them of, so you're you're on a mountain at night at almost 4,000 meters, which for us Americans, that's, uh, you know, just under 14,000 feet. And um, it's winter. <laughs> Um, the <laughs> That's the typical response, response from neurotypicals. Right, which is uh, not a very effective way to uh, keep yourself alive in the middle of the winter at night. It's a lot better to go, huh, I don't know where my car is, but I've got food, I've got clothing, I've got a shovel to just snow cave. I'm, I'm good. My car's less. <laughs> and I love that because that truly is what makes the difference. And, you know, if you look at different survival experts and people who go out there are like, you have to remain calm. The minute you panic is when you're doomed, essentially, you know, and, and I lived in Colorado as well. And so, you know, going hiking and, and going anything above 10,000 feet, you know, where your oxygen level changes, you know, I always made sure I was well prepared. And, you know, whenever anything happens, it's just, I remain calm. And I don't know if that's just my, my neurodiverse brain in the sense that I don't, just short circuit and panic. I'm like, okay, we problem solve for the next step and we just keep going. <laughs> I think it is our, our way our brains work. I, th I think with the autistic brain, we have the tendency when there's a problem in front of us to go for a direct solution. And, and certainly having a panic is not any part of a solution to a problem. Uh, so I, I think you're right. That is just what we focus on. We go to, what can I do now? Yeah. And I, I find I get out of sticky situations a lot easier that way, less stressful. Right, because you're actually trying to figure out what you can do as opposed to uh, expecting some pre-programmed response to be appropriate. So you're you're really paying attention to the situation and, and analyzing it versus just reacting to the situation. But NeuroCloud, which you had asked about. NeuroCloud came about because, uh, you know, we have this concept of neurodiversity, which, of course, came from Judy Singer down in uh, Australia. And the concept is, is very good uh, in explaining lots of things. But there's some of it that I think people have a little challenge getting their heads wrapped around. And it uses some terminology that I think in my overall concept of uh, emotional life of words, uh, there's some words in there that most people won't understand that emotional life of them is pretty negative. So I think from a marketing standpoint, we should get rid of words that sound negative if you don't know the meaning. Uh, and I love that. I think that's just pure genius. So what it goes down to is neurodiversity to start with is just the very, very simple concept that noses and ears and eyes all vary, you know, from person to person. And we don't think anything about that. So it's the idea that our brains, the way they're shaped, the way that they're wired, the way that they communicate inside you know, our brain is just as different. It's the most complex organ we have in our body. So why shouldn't it vary more than a nose, which is pretty simple in comparison? And further, we think that the way that your brain is wired and you know, operates and perceives and processes will pretty well dictate how you're going to perceive and process the world. So what we end up with is saying there's a whole range of different ways that people perceive and process the world, and they're all normal. So in other words, just like saying diversity, there's a whole different variety of genders and races and ethnicities and uh, sexual orientations and all those things. But we just say that's the normal range of humans. 
I mean, they go through that whole range. Uh, so we're just saying there's a huge range of ways that people can think and process. And there's not one that's the right one and everything else is wrong. There's just a lot of variety of different ones. And in different situations, different ones will work better or worse. So the way I really describe it is, if you think of the way that anybody could perceive, process, and think, as just being like a little you know, bit of color piece floating around inside of a cloud, a little piece of confetti floating around in a cloud that's being mixed up. And like most things are floating and swirling around, sooner or later things start to clump together a little bit and you know, a little organization happens. And what we end up with is each one of those pieces represents, again, a way to perceive, process, think about the world. Now, when they start clumping together, we get one large clump. And we refer to that as neurotypical. They're not identical, but there's a fair amount of similarities. Now, the most important thing is there's nothing special about them. Just because they're a majority didn't make them amazing or, or anything. There's just more of them, period. You know, just like there's more bugs on the earth than there are humans. You know, it's just the way it is. It's not that bugs are better. I think most of us agree. It's probably the other way around. Um, so neurotypical simply means people who think in a manner that would be considered the norm for most societal you know, groups. Then we now have this other group that sits outside of neurotypical. And I refer to that as neurodistinct. So how do we define neurodistinct? It's super simple. Somebody who perceives, processes, or thinks in a distinctly different manner than neurotypicals. So it's just a really a, a relative comparison. We're saying the norm for the society thinks this way. They, and if we're talking neurotypicals, the norm of society works off of a very emotional base. There's an emotional undercurrent under virtually everything in neurotypical life. Now, you and I tend to work on less of an emotional base. We tend to work more of on a logical basis, as we were just discussing with being, you know, standing on a mountain with your car lost, is we wouldn't think about it emotionally. There's no emotion to think about. The problem is, do I have the right stuff to get through what I got to get through? That's the only question, not some emotional question of, you know, is, is my uh, uh, mind and body all mixed up and feeling like panic? Well, that might be wonderful, but it won't get me out of the situation versus saying, okay, I've got food, I've got a stove, I've got, uh, you know, down pants, I've got another down jacket. I'm good for the winter. <laughs> I'm good for the night. <laughs> so that's really all that neurocolon comes down to is a very simple way to represent that, first off, neurodiversity is all humans, just like diversity is all humans. You know, just because, uh, you know, you and I happen to be, uh, you know, white and come from a Caucasian, you know, background doesn't mean we get out of diversity. We are just as much a part of diversity as any other group. Of course, we're considered the problem group, but nonetheless, we still belong in the, uh, in the mix. And in neurodiversity... <laughs> I'm more than just the problem group. I'm just the problem most of the time. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's actually pretty funny because usually when I'm in a problem or in trouble, it's all by myself. I couldn't get a group to go with me. <laughs> exactly. The cheese stands alone. Yep. Yep. The only one crazy enough. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they, you know, the problem group, uh, you know, is out there and um, we have to learn how to interact and, and work with it while we're also working obviously on trying to educate them and get them to understand that just because we're autistic or maybe ADHD or maybe OCD or maybe dyslexia or you know any of the other things we can throw in that fall under 
thinking differently doesn't make us wrong just because our idea is different. And all too often, I see in the business world, if you don't agree with the group idea, then you're wrong. As opposed to yeah. saying, oh, that's a different idea. Maybe we should consider that one. Uh, and I always say, it's not that they have to consider it like they take it. I just think that if you get a different idea, you should at least you know, check out the ramifications and say, does it potentially even fit? Well, I totally agree with you. And I actually had a conversation yesterday uh, with Bruce Petherick, who is a professional musician, autistic. And he has worked in the corporate world of music and pr music production for film and things like that. So we were talking about <clears throat> when people are neurodistinct and we're in business meetings and we're interacting with different neurotypes and we're collaborating on projects, how easily it is that the majority seems to be like, and it's sort of an ego thing in a lot of ways too, depending on what you're in, the people are like, oh, wait, no, this is, this is my idea. We, we don't, we don't defame it. We don't, you know, muddy the waters. This is it. And this is what we're going with. And, you know, then you got all the, the yes men going, yes, 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 let's do that. And you're sitting there going, but I got a way better idea or at least something to contribute to this that might make it even better. Or I see 50 steps ahead where this could be a problem. And, you know, this is something I want to kind of contribute to this because I want it to be successful. And people look at you like you just grew a third head. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're looking at you like, be quiet. Why are you talking? This is a meeting. And I'm like, yeah, it's a meeting. <laughs> you know, it, it's really interesting when you, you bring that up. I, um, at one point back in my career, used to uh, work with a woman who at the time she was at Chase Bank, she was the highest female executive at Chase Bank. And she had a, a, a manager that she used to report to at somewhere along her you know, career there, who would bring in his group. And this is a fairly executive level group at this point. And he would ask them all to go around the room and each one to give their thoughts on whatever the problem on hand was. And almost inevitably, he would not follow anything anybody said. He'd just go do whatever he wanted. And of course, you know, the, uh, the general thought amongst everybody is, why is he wasting our time when he doesn't even listen to us? Well, the woman that I worked for finally, after long enough, decided that it wasn't going to be career limiting if, if she asked. So she, uh, so she asked, why do you ask us all these questions and then never do anything that we suggest? And now this answer, if we could apply it to uh, anybody dealing with a neurodistinct person, it is just, it, it's golden. I mean, and that wasn't the situation it was applied in, but it was applied in a very executive situation. And what his answer was, I've already thought about this problem extremely hard and in lots of different ways. I just want to make sure that there wasn't something I missed. So if all of you do is bring up things I've thought about, I already know my answer. I'm looking for that one of, oh, gosh, I didn't think of that. So oh, in other words, he, boy, he really that. would have wanted the neurodistinct person in the room because he wants to hear that opinion he didn't think of. So he can now say, oh, I, I got to figure that one in, too. But oh, when you I think about it. it, how different? When, have you ever heard of a manager asking everybody then doing whatever they please? <laughs> well, I've heard of people that they take half of the information that they learn in some 
managerial and skill building courses that they've taken. And it's, you know, make sure that your employees get buy-in, make sure that they feel valued and heard. So they go through this, you know, parade of tell me what you think because they, and then they don't listen or they glaze over. But unlike this gentleman who actually was just saying, Hey, is there something I've missed? I am listening and I am reading through what you're saying, but he didn't, man, he didn't express that up front. Right. So everybody's left wondering, well, Dude, you ask, we we voice our opinion, and then you completely ignore us. So now you're just wasting my time. And isn't it interesting, Tim, how just those small little tidbits of information completely change the context of a conversation? And how many times in your world and in mine has this happened? All the time. You know, I, I was uh, just speaking of words. I mean, for me, as you know, communication and, and uh, language is a, a huge part, I'm convinced, in the challenges that you know we both face, and any neurodistinct person faces. And when you get into the, the whole word thing, it, word thing, it is so subtle. That is why it's all missed. I mean, this is one of these cases of where you need the autistic person in the room to say, no, that's not the way it's working, even though everybody else agreed it was different. Example was I was um, working with a couple professors from um, you know, Cornell and Vanderbilt and going through one of their survey instruments that they're working on for a National Science Foundation project. And they're going to be asking neurodistinct individuals, primarily autistic, that had been placed about you know what's working, what's not working, all, all those kind of things to get a little better understanding of how do you retain autistic people once you recruit. Well. One of the questions, for instance, said, broadly describe your job duties. Okay, how big is broadly? I'm guessing it's more than one sentence just because, you know, I've taken these things before and they usually want a little more than yes or no. Um, but is it two sentences? Is it five sentences? The box was pretty big. I probably could have put three paragraphs in if I, I squeezed hard enough. Uh, broadly is meaningless. There's no sense of you know, what is broadly? Is one? Is it a hundred? I, I don't know what broadly means. The ambiguity kills me. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you, I'm like, you are leaving this up to my interpretation based on what you perceived and your intent was when you used the word. Right. And we don't know what their intent was when they were used the word of, do you just want the bullet points of my primary duties? In which case you should have said, list your primary duties, because almost everybody knows what those are. Um, or at least what they've been told they are. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully somebody handed you a job description while you were interviewing. Right, right, exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, the other parts just aren't aren't fit in, aren't considered in. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, just brushing on the, the communication thing, that's one of the big, big challenges is using words that don't have definitive meanings. Oh, Tim, this is so why I love talking to you. Seriously. We're, di we're diving into this one a little deeper because you, you and it's, I. It's an so important one. I, I think this it is, is so important. I think this is what trips us all up when we have a, you know, a uh, neurodistinct, neuro neurotypical, you know, run in. I think it's oh, almost always. I mean, you know, once in a rare while, it could be something weird, but almost always it starts from a communication breakdown and then just spirals. It does. And it, 
words are so incredibly important because they they carry meaning and context, but when they are ambiguous or they are used in a way without context, without any captioning of some sort to give you deeper insight, you're left to your own devices. And I'm just going to be honest. If you leave me to my own devices to figure out what something is, you're getting my perception in my world. And sometimes it might be completely different from, from yours. I've learned for myself that I have to proactively question. And sometimes I find that I get pushback from the neurotypical world when I question things that I want more clarity on or I want more specifics because the ambiguity threw me. It didn't connect. It didn't make sense because I thought, well, you know, broadly describe my job description. Well, broadly could be, you know, just a quick overview. It could be 10 paragraphs. It could be the specifics and the bullet points. What do you want? I'll give you what you want, but you have to let me know a little bit more than just broadly describe. <laughs> that doesn't happen. And, you know, this was one of the things that I really came to because, and you were the one, and I, I got to give you this. You don't even know it. So I'm telling you now. <laughs> even know what you've done but you've done something amazing we we had so we've had a couple conversations and and I have listened to your podcast I've listened to the presentations that you've given I have just dove into all the wonderful things on your website and when it talks about words and how we choose words and especially how you see that I, it made such a deep connection with me and when people in the autistic community talk about unmasking, it really didn't sit with me because it's just this word that only describes removing the mask of social psychology definition of what masking is. You know, and, and as late identified autistics, we all come to this knowledge that we've been masking our whole life, right? <laughs> You're just like, okay, so who the hell am I under this? Actually, no, I, I've not been masking my whole life. I've been inspired <laughs> instead my whole life, but that's... <laughs> Kind of a you know different track than most take. Right, exactly. And I love that about you because you are so truly unique in your world. And what it but what it implies is that when by a neurotypical standard is that when you remove this mask, then you're you, you're the authentic person underneath, and you know who you are, and you just show up as you. Well, when you're late identified and you have been masking for decades without knowing that you're doing that, then you remove start to begin to remove these layers of performance in your life. And you're not the authentic you necessarily. You're this very covered up version. And you inspired me to continue to dig because I didn't feel like that was a really good description for what I had experienced in my life. So I came up with the more specific definition, a more specific word of what we as late identified people experience through this process as unveiling. Mm. That, that is an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Um, I, I like that. You know, because masking, masking to me really isn't quite the right term. Um, it didn't sit with me either. No, masking to me, you know, if I just take it without going and looking up the, the actual definition or anything, it has kind of a connotation of, um, of um, putting on a fake persona. Yes. Um, which I don't think most of us do. I don't, I don't think I, we, we have enough uh, bandwidth in my brain to think about all the things I think about and think about what persona I'm going to put on for today. Right. 
Um, but it's more of a safety mechanism of operating based on behaviors in the context so you don't stick out. Exactly. Now, I think the big problem when we, you know, unveil is we we drop some of the things that we were doing just as cover and we don't change anything else. And that's where then the problem starts coming in in the communication. You know, I, I had alluded to the uh, emotional life of words. And I think this is one that, especially if you're on mask or if you're masked, but you still just don't do it very well and you still come off flat affect, very monotone, you know. And to me, the emotional life of words is uh, we can sum it up real well with the word beach. Because oh. when you say beach to most people, that's the reaction is, ooh, happy, fun, vacation, nice, ooh. So in other words, there's an emotional content to the word beach that has absolutely nothing to do with the definition. Because the definition, when I went and looked it up on, I don't know, dictionary.com or something, was, um, if I remember right, a sand or pebble slope surface uh, that, you know, touches or hits the water. Um, that doesn't sound very emotionally positive or arousing or anything. I mean, I've been to lots of places where there's been sand or gravel surfaces touching the water that were not particularly pleasurable kind of places to be at either. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, the word has a positive emotional connotation. Now, when you're dealing with a, a word like beach, I think people, because they understand it, it's an easy word, they kind of get the idea, but then they kind of get some emotion wrapped around it. Where it gets worse are when we're dealing with words that have no or an unknown definition. And now this gets into my, uh, my kick about why I use neurodistinct versus neurodivergent. And purely on the emotional life of the word. First off, neurodivergent, most people don't know what it means. So we, we were using a word that uh, basically is talking down to people using a essentially a PhD level word for the general population. Well, what do people generally think when you come across as talking down to them? And as autistic people, we generally know pretty well what they think, which is you're an arrogant jerk. That's about how they walk away. You're, you're making me feel stupid. I don't like feeling stupid. So it's not me. Obviously, you're the jerk because I don't like feeling stupid. Um, so neurodivergent to me is one of those words, because when you say neurodivergent, first off, most people don't know what it means. So we're now down to what they're going to guess at what it means. So we're really down to the emotional life of it. Diverge, diverging, all those kind of things have the splitting, the separation, this negative connotation to them of being totally split off and separate, not part of the whole like we really want to try and say we are. So by saying we're neurodivergent, we're actually saying, no, we aren't part of the rest of the group. And we already went over that. Everybody falls under neurodiversity. Nobody gets out alive. If you, if you die, you can get out. But other than that, you don't, you don't get out alive. Um, so that's why I don't use a neurodivergent is most people don't understand the term. And because of that, they guess what it means because most won't ask you. And it has a negative connotation. It's a the separation. So I came up with the term neurodistinct. And the way I was thinking about it is, first off, neurodistinct. I, I think anybody with a sixth grade you know, education can get neurobrain distinct, uh, unique. Okay, I, I got that. I can figure that one out. And secondly, 
have you ever met anybody that didn't want to be distinct in some way? Everybody wants to be distinct in their own unique ways. And now instead of talking about go hire these divergent people, ooh, man, do we need like masks and spray form? Or what, what do we need for divergent people? Or, you know, hire this bunch of uh, neurodistinct people. Oh, what's distinct about them? Well, this one can think like brilliant and this one here can do amazing artwork and this one can act like you wouldn't believe. So I, I just think um, it expresses in the ways that neurotypicals receive information, which is with that emotional wrapper around it all the time, it expresses a much more clear and positive image of people who think differently than neurodivergent. I love it. And I so agree with you because words always have this emotional context to them, this emotional response. And that's one of the things that my friend Rebecca and I talked about is there, we use words in our everyday life and we associate things, especially, you know, past traumas and hurts and things like that. They all carry this heavy weighted emotion. You know, so it's kind of like when somebody's called you weird, someone's called you annoying, you know, all of those things, um, then you have this emotional response that is then attached to that word based on the history and experience that you've had with it. And when you talk about being diverse versus being distinct, when you think about diverse, you think about divergent, you think about something moving away from, and exactly well, why do I want to hire a neurodivergent person who's not going to fit in, who's not going to be a part of, I am already separating just through my language choice, this person by definition of what that word implies emotionally for me in my subconscious. Mm -hmm. I love yeah, I, that. I, I say if you go and uh, put it in front of a marketing focus group. You know, and when people want to say about, you know, no, words really don't have emotional connotations like that. And if they want to argue about it, it's real simple. Why do we spend billions of dollars on marketing and coming up with wacky names for drugs that, uh, you know, because it it resounds in some way. You know, we, we have all kinds of panels where we, we make up names because the names have certain connotations that go with it, even though there's no meaning to the name. Exactly. I mean, look at the names of cars, you know, Acura is not a real word. It is a made up marketing word, right. you know, for a car. And that happens on so many levels for so many different things. Why wouldn't we take control of the narrative that is speaking for us and choose what is going to unify versus what is going to continue to divide? And I love that you do that, Tim. Well, what I've seen that's to me is the interesting part. And part of the, you know this challenge is us autistic individuals ourselves. And the initial word that Judy Singer came up with was neurodivergent. And they will refuse to change that word because that word is exactly the word they want and exactly the word they mean. And they have no clue what marketing is and they have no clue how much they're pissing off and turning off everybody. And they're just going to stick and keep using it. And I say, great, I'm going to change the world and use a different word. And guess what? You're going to be left out, you know, sounding like an idiot. Um, they don't believe me, but that's okay. We chat. all make our choices, right? right, right. <laughs> you and I are making our choice. Um, We're choosing a word that is much more inclusive and speaks in a better way to right. who we are. So what I always get, though, from the, the autistic community in general, 
I mean, and this isn't, you know, obviously you, you're autistic, you have a different view on it, but I would say, if I could say the Asperger-y type self-advocates that have been floating around is, no, it's the right word, it's the word I really mean, and I'm not going to change the word, and I don't care how it affects anybody. Well, you know, we do tend to go towards black and white thinking, and we're like, this is the first thing I heard, this is what I'm sticking with. And it's it's kind of like what happens, and this is why it, it's a really big part of the mind or autistic brain community. And I, I base this on kindness, gentleness, patience, and understanding, because we all come to autism with a different voc vernacular, a different vocabulary, and it comes from wherever we are when mm -hmm. we learn we're autistic. Mm -hmm. And it comes from whoever was kind enough to share with us, hey, you know, you're autistic. Well, the DSM-5 is used in the United States. It is not a global tool. So having it categorized as autism spectrum disorder, which I really hate, that's another word we gotta talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's still, there are places in the world where the diagnosis that someone receives on paperwork is that you have Asperger's syndrome. That, that's the and so that, Right, and that is what that person knows. And then they go out and they start looking and they come across, well, there's gobs of all of this out there with all this functioning language. And, you know, as we know, being autistics who have been in this world for a while, we know that the functioning labels don't serve and they really tend to divide inaccurate descriptions. And it's, it's sort of what was created by a neurotypical medical world to distinguish functioning within scientific research. So we know that that doesn't apply in our real world, but that's still the language that some people are, are that's what they know. That's what they come to the community with. And man, they get completely dogpiled. They get attacked because they come and they say, hey, I just found out I'm high functioning Asperger's. Can somebody help me? And people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that. I feel so invalidated. I feel so triggered. Well, you know what? Jesus, we all have felt like that. It all happens. And you know what? We all started somewhere. We start with the language that we know. We come to this looking for help. And then you got your own people, a disenfranchised, hurt and abused and traumatized group turning on you. How do you think you feel after that? Oh, my God, you want to crawl into a hole and never come out, never ask another question. And you'll just suffer for the rest of your life rather than be abused by somebody you know has experienced life the same way as you. And you just said something the wrong way and they got all pissy about it. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many times that happened to me when I first started. So I was like, this is ridiculous and we're not going to do this. And I started this whole vernacular conversation. And I was like, look, we all come to this from where we are. And the best thing you can do, being the person that's ahead of somebody else on this journey to reach your hand out and go, hey, I'm so glad you're here. What can I do to help you? Where are you struggling right now? Let me share with you what I've learned. And just do it in a gentle and a kind way. Be patient. Be understanding with where that person is. Because that's not where they're going to be. That's just where they are right now. And you weren't, you didn't start where you are right now in the middle of the night. You didn't wake up painting like Van Gogh. You woke up finger painting. You know, I mean, come on. <laughs> No, that that is so so true, and it, it is hurtful. Uh, you know, if instead the you know community were to embrace them and simply say, you know, welcome to the community, let them talk, and then say, you know, by the way, there's a few terms we tend to use differently now, but they're okay. Don't you know? It's not a big deal. 
Exactly. But you know, you send them in the direction of where things are going, um, but don't criticize them that they were using a term that you know three years ago would have been the perfect term to use. And I think that that kind of rolls into people get attached to words. You know, you everybody is looking for their identity. You know, especially when you feel like you've been lost in in this abyss for decades, and you finally get an answer, and you're like, "This is my word. This is me. It describes me. And I'm autistic, and I'm ADHD, and I have pots, and these are all my labels and all my things, and this is me." And so that happens to us. That happens to us as humans. As my friend Evelyn says, we have human responses, not just autistic. You know, and there's a distinction. We have human responses. And the human response is that we all want to be distinct. We all want to have something that describes us in our very unique way. And when we have found a word that we resonate with, that we feel really describes us, then that's the word that we believe is part of us. And then it sort of weaves itself into the fabric of our existence. And sometimes we're not real apt to want to let go of it if it even is presented that hmm, maybe there's a better word. That's, that's very true. And uh, as you say, you know, dealing with this population, we do have a tendency to uh, be a little black and white and, and hang on to uh, those things that we like and uh, totally discount those that are less familiar to us. So I I agree with you 100% that uh, people do get words that they identify with. Um, and then they just kind of get stuck on, on that word, even if the vernacular has changed over time. Um, I mean, if, if you want, I guess, take an example. And again, I use the LGBTQ plus community so much because there's so many similarities. And once upon a time, you just said they were gay. That was it. End of story. Um, nowadays, that is not giving much of a description unless you truly happen to be a male that is homosexual, then we would call you gay. That's now it has a specific meaning. And you've seen in that community, for the most part, people have been willing to move with the changes in, in language and such. I think this is a case where our black and white is actually kind of coming back to bite us in that we're not willing to necessarily move with the society because as you say, this is the one that defined me. It's the one I feel comfortable with. It's the one I know. I'm gonna stick with. So Tim, I think this is a really great place for having a conversation on what are some things or some thoughts or ideas that you have that might help move us forward in embracing and adapting and sort of taking our vernacular and moving it forward with the times. I mean, think about it. And I, I love your example because this was an interesting conversation I had recently. So gay started out as being happy. Gay, mm -hmm. by definition, means I'm a happy person. I'm gay and happy, right? In the so 20s, then, 30s would have been, that would have been right. the definition I mean, here. When you're using the bee's knees, gay meant you're happy. So, <laughs> you know, and, and in the evolution of that word over time. So now I have some um, friends who are females who identify as females who say, well, I'm queer, you know, I'm not, or I'm non-binary. Um, and so all of these things are new. These are evolutions in the, in the community of the LGBTQ plus community. You know, I have transgender friends, you know, well, 
I was born a male, I am now a, a female, you know, I'm now assigned and identify as female. So, you know, you've got all of this and you've got this evolution that's just, it's sort of this current, it's like a water, you know, it, it's, it's different. And as we're going through this evolution, the context, the meaning, the definitions are all evolving. Yet we're kind of slowly getting there in our community. What are some things or ways that you think of or would suggest or that you're seeing might be a way for us to move forward and, and to start embracing some of these vernacular changes that we have going on? You know, one of the first things I, I would say is we need to recognize when we're interacting and communicating with the neurotypical mass population, that they communicate on a different basis than we do. And to me, the what it breaks down to is there's really three pieces to the communication simultaneously. There's the words. We all can agree on the words. That's easy. Then there's tonality that's added to the words. Now, in a lot of autistics, there is no tonality. Um, you know, I happened to went and studied a lot. You just seemed to, uh, my guess would be it was mom teaching you, uh, you know, to be the socialite you were going to be. Um, you know, you, you got taught how to speak the right way to speak. Um, but a lot of autistics never got taught to speak in a, we'll say, a more neurotypical sounding manner. Um, so we end up with this problem of we're trying to communicate to them in a manner that will never connect with them. We're trying to make a logical reasoning with somebody who is more of an emotional processor. Um, I, I guess this would be the equivalent of, uh, you know, taking your uh, partner and it doesn't matter, partner, whichever, it doesn't matter, any, just partner, we'll say. Um, and um, you're, you're trying to convince them on a logical reason why it is that you should or shouldn't, uh, you know, paint the house a certain color or something. It, it's a totally emotional decision. I mean, there's nothing really logical about what color you're going to paint your house other than the homeowner association will prove it. Um, but it's emotional. So you need to address the conversation on the points that will actually move it. And what will move it is the emotions around why. Now, that doesn't mean you have to become this emotional, you know, gushing kind of person. Uh, that probably doesn't suit a lot of our personalities. But it does mean that you need to understand that is the language that they primarily communicate in. Just like if we were to go to uh, France. We need to recognize that French is the primary language they communicate in there. And I, I picked the French just because they are, you know, also somewhat known for if you don't make the effort first, they won't make the effort back. Um, that is so true. C'est vrai. And I can't blame them in the least. If you aren't going to try, why should they? Um, but um, we just end up in that, that whole point of nobody's even trying so that there's no way to respond back differently because they're getting the exact same input overall. You know, no, that doesn't work. No, I can't do that. I need more. I need to understand why emotionally what's going on. And if you explain, no, I can't do that because that causes me great anxiety because that's a comorbidity I have with my autism. People would go, oh, I get it now. Not just, oh, Tim doesn't want to do those projects. I love that. And I, as just sort of a tip and an action tool step for our, our watchers and listeners today, this is a really good thing that Tim just pointed out. And it's something that I teach and I share. When you're giving a statement because there is an emotional connection, 
and the other person usually needs more context, kind of like we do, I can't because. If you add in the because, it's kind of like in, in marketing techniques and tools, you're explaining a deeper reasoning, then you're able to better communicate, more effectively communicate and convey your why to the other person. And you're not going to get that pushback that you would without using and engaging your because or your why, because then you're opening up this understanding. And that really is where the communication breakdown and the, the deficit between our neurotypes comes in because we think, and I might start in the middle of a sentence sometimes, I catch myself doing that. And the other person is looking at me with this glazed over look like, I have no clue what you're talking about. And I'm backing up like 20 steps and start over. <laughs> and that's sometimes how it feels in our conversations. So by engaging the because or your why to get a little bit deeper. And I know sometimes it's like, we want to give the minimal answer. We want the least amount of verbal interaction possible, but so that we are benefiting. And this isn't for uh, the other person's benefit, truly. It is for our own individual benefit of when we communicate in certain ways and we take those additional steps, when we know to engage use and use them, like the because or the why reason when you're giving your answer or reply to someone, it helps us because then we don't have the other person looking at us like we have three heads. They're not looking at us like we're a total jerk because we just said no. When really we have a very valid why as to why we said no, but they don't know that. So they just assume because humans do this, they assume you're just being a jerk. Yep. Um, and, and I would say as, uh, you know, autistic individuals, we tend to be judged as being jerks far more often because we tend to be very direct in our, our comments and such. Uh, so instead of, you know, dancing around the circle where nobody really quite understood what the issue was, we, we tend to point directly at the issue and let's fix it. Um, there's no, let's blame somebody about it. That doesn't matter. It's just, let's fix it. But exactly. we know what else is going on in the room. Okay, who are we going to blame this time? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I've always, that has just always blown my mind until I understood the, the communication differences. Because it's like everybody wants to be a finger pointer. Everybody wants to assign blame. And I'm like, what the heck is wrong with you people? Let's just fix it and move on. I don't care who the heck did it. It's no biggie. They're going to learn when we fix it. They won't make the same mistake again. They'll make a different one. But we'll handle that when it comes up. Let's just move forward. Do not waste my time finger pointing, please. You know, you, when you said the whole marketing, you know, that what you really need to do is think about it from a marketing standpoint, I, you, you nailed it as far as I'm concerned. I think that first off, anybody uh, that is neurodistinct should go take a marketing class. Just 101. It can be marketing 101. You just need to learn that, you know, the value of uh, this pencil isn't just that it's a pencil. It's that it was made in Germany. That adds extra value to it. That it's got a gorgeous finish. That adds extra value to it. So there's way more value than just the physical things. But most people don't know that because they never studied marketing to understand, you know, the gorgeous package as you unwrap it. That's part of the product. That's part of the experience. And if more, particularly the self-advocates, <laughs> were to understanding more marketing, they would recognize that the message needs to be delivered in the way that moves the intended audience, not that sounds good to you. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's it's truly about how do we better embrace 
everything in our world so that it is moving us forward. It is enriching and elevating our lives. Just like any other group of people, we have to come together because a rising tide raises all ships. And if we are having these kind of communication discussions, then who is? And how are we helping anyone? How are we helping ourselves? And how are we helping our community? And how are we better reaching out and crossing that communication bridge that we have and that gap that's that's currently there in existence? How do we better bridge it so that we're creating a world where we are all working in unison, where we are working together with deeper understanding and appreciation of one another? Because that's really where we're headed, isn't it? It, it really is. And Unfortunately, I, I don't see it happening on a broad basis. Where it's happening right now are things like you and me, and you know, you, you and Jesse, and me, and you know, whatever. We, we've built our own networks around us, and there are people that are being more progressive about this, that are trying to move it to better places, but they're definitely the minority for sure. Um, well, hopefully we are recruiting a few more onto our vessel today, Tim, and think, we will have a giant ship full and we will all be moving together. I, I think we're uh, we're adding them as we go. Um, I mean, just the companies I've talked to in the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I had the, the wonderful clever. Ple- yeah, whew, there's a tongue twister. The wonderful pleasure of speaking at Disability in. Um, I guess it was about a month ago now. And it was the only uh, topic on neurodiversity. And it ended up being me uh, and a uh, vice president from Dell. And out of that now, I have talked to, I don't know, talked to a company in the UK this morning from that, uh, talked to a, a major, major, um, I don't know what you call it, retail beverage seller, let's just call it that. Um, you know, major uh, consulting corporations, all reached out because they're trying to get a handle on this thing. And all they keep hearing is the same crap over and over and over again. They keep hearing about building support circles and and getting outside agencies to recruit more people and and all that stuff. And I constantly keep asking them, and and I think I'm I'm starting to get annoying about it, but that's okay. Um, My question about them is always, yeah, but what are you doing about the uh, autistic people you already employ? Exactly. And the answer usually is, well, you know, with this, more people have stepped up and they're stepping forward. No, what are you doing about the people? Not like, how are they responding to this little pilot programming you're doing? And the answer is almost always nothing. Yeah. So as we move forward, that's another conversation we definitely need to have. Uh, the whole at work <laughs> conversation is uh, boy, we the whole at work long time on that one. <laughs> yes, we can. And we definitely need to have it because that is a hot topic. And, you know, that's one of the new segments on the podcast is hot topic. So, Tim, I definitely want you to come back and I want to do a hot topic conversation on neurodiversity and neuro distinctness and employability and in the workplace, how things are being set up and what we can do to help support and set that up. You know, that's, Today, as I said, that, that's wonderful about the, what we can do because I think there has been this, I don't know, perception in the autism community that we need other people to go out and do it for us. The complacency 
problem is what no, I call it. Better, you've already been problem. beat up enough times. You really aren't feeling like sticking your head, you know, into the lion's jaw again. You know? Exactly. It's like self-preservation um, mode. But I, I like to point out that uh, I know in the last couple of weeks of two events that I think uh, were totally unique. And one event was uh, an event we held at Google, and it was put on by us autistic Googlers were the ones who organized it. And we actually organized it with um, uh, essentially no approval from anybody. We just did it. And we did recruit lots of other people. I mean, we had lots of other neurodistinct people. We had autistic, we had dyslexic. I mean, we had uh, ADHD, we had a nice mix. And we even had a bunch of neurotypicals who wanted to be allies and help. And as far as I know, that is the first major event at a major company that was put on 100% by the autistic individuals. And it was called oh, man, that's the Spectrum for Managers. Uh, so in other words, we wanted the managers to know how to manage us because who's else is going to teach them? And then the second one was I was on a uh, panel last week with uh, General Assembly, the uh, educational group. And they were doing their tech week and they had a um, autism in, you know, in tech. And the panel was um, Heron from uh, EY, and then Mark from Mark Fester from uh, Otacon, and uh, Marcy from uh, Alternauts, and then myself. Well, if you don't know all of them, then you wouldn't realize Heron was the only neurotypical in the entire group. All the rest of us were autistic. I think that's the, and it was international, the panel that we had international attendees. So that, I think that's the first international with high end people of the autism and work place that was predominantly neurodistinct individuals giving their view of what it is, not neurotypicals giving their view. Now, I will say on, on Heron's defense, um, we've all pretty well agreed. Uh, he, he is an honorary uh, you know, autistic. Um, <laughs> I love it. He, he's got it down. He's done it long enough. We, we just consider him an honorary autistic. But just welcome him into the fold. And I love it. that you do that. And, you know, that was one of the things I meant to ask you about. I know you had that fantastic conversation where this was your manager that participated and you guys sat down and have conversations and you were sharing some of the experiences that you had had where the communication had broken down. So I love that. And I think that's so fantastic. And I definitely want to come back and do an episode on that. Tim Goldstein, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for adding your voice, your insights, and your wonderful vernacular to this beautiful conversation. If you want to check out more about the NeuroCloud and more about Tim Goldstein, visit timgoldstein.com. He's also on LinkedIn and you can find him on the web. He is a Googler and he is an amazing individual. Thank you so much, Tim. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you very much, Carol Jean. 